This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, there are a whole lot of people in light of Vladimir Putin's uh, interview, uh, not interview, decision yesterday to recognize these two breakaway Ukrainian republics that believe that he is well on his way to reforming the USSR. By now, you have seen the story. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia have been have recognized two brand new republic republics, Donetsk, the People's Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk. And we are uh, going to the center, the eye of the storm right now to the People's Republic of Donetsk, which is recognized by at least one other country right now. And we're going to uh, chat with Russell Texas Bentley, an American expatriate who has been in Donetsk for years now, fighting alongside these Ukrainian separatists. He's kind enough to join us on the radio from time to time. Russell, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's good to be back talking to you. Russell, why is it that it's you have better reception in the middle of war-torn Eastern Europe than I do when I try to talk to somebody who's in Brooklyn. <laughs> well, you know, we, we have pretty good uh, infrastructure here. Uh, in spite of the war, we've uh, got a government that uh, tries to take care of the people, which uh, isn't always the case other places. All right. Now, uh, give me your reaction to the announcement by Vladimir Putin and Russia yesterday. Well, I mean, this is uh, a really huge development You know, I think that we can uh, safely say that it will be a history-making, history-changing event that people will remember in years to come as the before and after. Particularly here, uh, the shelling by the Ukrainian army against uh, our civilians and our defenders has been intensifying over the recent couple of months. It's been uh, very, very heavy. They've been... uh, they've. Two, two schools got bombed in uh, Donetsk yesterday. Uh, you know, four civilians were killed, at least four, a couple of our soldiers, too. So, I mean, uh, you know, they, they targeted an uh, electricity generating station. They've um, really been uh, doing war crimes as, as much as they can. So, you know, this is going to stop. You know, in fact, as soon as the announcement was made, Uh, I can, uh, you know, reveal that uh, the Russian army, which they've been saying for seven years, oh, that the Russian army was here occupying Donbass. And that was a lie until last night. The Russian army did come into Donbass last night. And uh, it's going to be a very big and unpleasant surprise for the war criminals that have been uh, bombing our cities here for the last seven, eight years. You you said a mouthful there. I want to follow up on a lot of what you said there. Now, um, we had been told by the U.S. government and a lot of anonymous sources in Western media that uh, Vladimir Putin, as a pretense for invading Ukraine, might try to establish some sort of a false flag incident where he would make it look like the Ukrainians were doing something bad as a pretense for uh, the Russian army going into territorial Ukraine. Then it just so happens the Ukrainian army attacks um, areas that are held by the the Russian-backed separatists in Donetsk and uh, Luhansk. 
Could this be the kind of false flag incident that Western journalists and the Biden administration were warning people about? Uh, No. I mean, first of all, the basic operating principle of all well-informed people is that everything that the U.S. government and Western media, MSN, says is a lie. And so that's the basic premise that we operate from. Uh, We're rarely wrong on that. The second thing is Russia doesn't need to make a false flag. They don't need an excuse. They already understand that whatever the reason is, that once they start coming in here, the U.S. and Europe is going to immediately impose, you know, the mothers of all sanctions and all like they've been talking about, sanctions from hell. And they know that that's going to happen regardless of whether their reasoning is justified or not. So they have no need to create a false flag. Another thing is they don't have to. There's already been, you know, I mean, beyond the completely documented. I mean, the OSCE, the UN have documented. These are objective, you know, Western, basically Western uh, organizations. And they have both said and proven without a doubt that 80% of the civilians killed in this whole war have been killed on our side by Ukrainian army fire. So, I mean, we don't need a false flag. We already have plenty of real flags to if prove pe- beyond a doubt if people that aren't, the Ukrainians are if, the aggressors If here. people aren't familiar with uh, that, uh, that acronym, OSCE, that is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That is the world's largest security-oriented intergovernmental organization. They have observer status at the UN, and uh, you you are saying or that they're claiming that they've recorded artillery shots fired from Ukrainian military-controlled areas at you guys in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, for for years, it's it's beyond any uh, dispute completely. Um, you know, I mean, the the false flags are done. I mean, I'm sure you remember the uh, what was it? The gas attacks in Syria that were proven false. You know, I mean, there's. The false flags are the operating procedures of the enemy, our enemies. Now, uh, what we we don't have to lie. We already have the truth on our side. Russell, why would Ukraine, which claims to want to avoid a, a confrontation, an armed conflict with Russia now, why would they ramp up attacks on you guys in Donetsk if they know that that's likely to result in Russian troops coming into what they view as Ukraine's borders? Well, okay, first of all, understand that the two republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, the the front line on those two republics between us and Ukrainian army, it's a little over 200 miles long. On that 200-mile front, the Ukrainian army right now has 150,000 soldiers with all artillery, tanks, you know, snipers, everything, everything. And uh, they're against, our guys are about 30,000 soldiers defending. Uh, The recognition by Russia last night officially uh, was a big surprise to them. It was a big surprise to a lot of people. And uh, the people here were very happy about it. Uh, As you can hear from the screaming and squealing, uh, the people in Ukraine and in the West, 
uh, are not happy at all about it. What happened was that before last night, the Ukrainian army intended to come back and try and take the Donbass republics by force. They have 150,000 soldiers against our 30,000. They figured they could come in and do it. But now they're facing, they know for a fact that they're facing the entire strength of the Russian army. So now they're going to change their minds. But up until last night, you know, I got to tell you, since last night, it's been pretty quiet around here. But, uh, you know, there's, first of all, there is uh, Nazi, neo-Nazi um, volunteer battalions. And these are guys with swastika tattoos that, I mean, literally say Heil Hitler and uh, and are as much war criminals as uh, the uh, Bandera Ukrainian army that collaborated with the German Nazis back in World War II. Uh, these are very dangerous, crazy dudes. They're genuine Nazis. There's also literally thousands of ISIS terrorists that are fighting on the Ukrainian army side. They've been flown in here by uh, Erdogan from Turkey, uh, from Syria, and there's thousands of them on the other side. So you maintain you know, that the, 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 the United States government right now is siding with not only neo-Nazis in their support of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military, but with ISIS militants as well? Uh, dude, they've been doing it for years. The ISIS guys have been here since 2015. You know, it's, this is no surprise. You don't think that the United States is siding with ISIS in Syria? I mean, come on. They've been arming them, paying them, training them, protecting them since the whole Syrian war. And it's the same thing here. Now, and that's for real. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, and by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Russell Bentley. He's uh, an American born uh, person living in Donetsk, which is, at least in the eyes of Russia, officially a country now. They have recognized the People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic of Lugansk. Um, the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, was speaking in Munich three days ago. And he claimed that you guys, the Ukrainian separatists, are shelling them, are, are, were shelling yourselves, quote, out of madness. So let me just ask the question, Russell, to the best of your knowledge, are the, were you guys attacking yourselves for some reason? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Is there really anyone stupid enough to believe that? I mean, you understand that we are defending our own homes our own families here you know i mean what advantage do we have i mean first of all again i go back to we don't need to create false flags there's already you know tens of thousands of proven beyond question cases of war crimes committed by the ukrainian army against the civilians here and uh i mean we don't need to but anyway we're not going to kill our own family for some political reason I mean, we don't care what people in Europe or the United States think. We're defending our family and homes. So, you know, we're not going to do that by killing our own family and bombing our own homes. What do you think happens next? Do you think there's a, a likelihood that um, we might see Vladimir Putin go beyond eastern Ukraine towards uh, Kiev and uh, attempt an invasion of the entire country of Ukraine? Well, First of all, it's not an invasion, it's a liberation. You have to understand that Ukraine is an occupied country. It's occupied by the U.S. and NATO. 
the United States in 2014 installed a puppet government. Uh, perhaps you remember the uh, uh, famous phone call between Victoria Newland and the uh, uh, then ambassador to Ukraine, uh, U.S. ambassador, in which she said F the EU. But she also said the most important thing in that conversation was that she said exactly who she wanted in which position in the administration. And every single one of those people ended up in exactly the positions that she said. The CIA and the U.S. State Department own and run Ukraine. Under Obama, Joe Biden was the point man here. He's the guy who called the shots completely. And uh, so if if the Ukrainian army continues to attack, then Russia will respond and will neutralize or eliminate every military threat to Russia or the Donbass People's Republics. And if that means going to Kiev, then they'll be there in a weekend and uh, see you there on Monday. But if, if the Ukrainians at this point, uh, you know, stop attacking, then it's possible and even likely that Russia will just uh, defend itself. But that's really not likely. There's too much crazy dudes with too much heavy weapons on the Ukrainian side of the front right now. You know, somebody's going to make a provocation. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be like um, you understand that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is one of the most highly trained martial artists in the world. He has a, a eighth degree uh, black belt in judo and a ninth degree in taekwondo. So if you can imagine a street fight between him and uh, Vladimir Zelensky, that's what it would be like for the Ukrainian army to have to be uh, straightened out by the Russian army. So we are not looking for a fight. You know, Russia has a, um, a, a failed rogue state right on its border. It has to deal with that one way or the other, and it will, but it doesn't want a big bloody war right on its on its border. You know, they want to liberate the people of Ukraine who are under uh, foreign occupation and Nazi oppression, but they don't want to kill thousands of people or destroy all the infrastructure in the country doing it. So they're still looking for a peaceful solution, but, you know, they've had enough of the war crimes of the Ukrainians against the people here. And uh, so they're coming in and they're going to defend us now. Russell, if you're if you're game, uh, I'd love to give our listeners an opportunity to ask you questions about what's happening over there, because I think sure, there's course. a lot of folks that are curious about your perspective. So if you have a question right now in the next few minutes for uh, Russell Bentley, who's joining us now live from the People's Republic of Donetsk, newly recognized not by the United States, not by the U.N., but by Vladimir Putin in Russia. Give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. It's 1-800-848-WABC. We're not going to take a lot of calls, but we'll take a few. So if you have a good question, call in now and we'll get to it. Now, um, uh, Russell, I realize that most of the people in Donetsk are ethnic Russians, and the chances are that when the Ukrainian government is hostile towards the Russian government, they may not want to be a part of the Ukrainian government. But I realize you're not necessarily an objective source on this question, but are there people in Donetsk that would prefer to remain part of Ukraine? Or as best you can tell, does pretty much everyone there want to be separated from Ukraine? Well, there's, you know, there's always going to be some, you know, weirdos or something, you know, but the vast majority 
of the uh, mentally competent people in this part of the world, in the Donbass region, are no longer willing to, you know, I mean, and they're, they're, abs they're willing to fight and die to keep from being under the current uh, Kiev regime. You know, you understand, I don't know if you remember back in 2014 in Odessa when some peaceful protesters there uh, had a protest in front of the uh, trade union and um, a, a hundred peaceful protesters were murdered. They were burned and beaten to death in public. I mean, that's another, you know, clearly obvious, you know, no question about it, war crime that was committed uh, on the orders of Joe Biden you know, to suppress any any type of uh, protest against the uh, coup regime. You know, these people, they understand that if these Nazis come into Donbass, it's going to be just like the German Nazis 80 years ago. And so they're not having it. You know, I mean, all my friends right now are in the army. They've, you know, they've gone back into the army in the last week or so to uh, defend Donbass against this, what was an intended an imminent invasion by the Ukrainian army that just got stopped last night by Vladimir Putin's signature. Now, uh, Russell, you're from Texas originally, right? That's right. So I'm from Austin, Texas. You, I know you know the history of Texas. Texas has been part of quite a few countries over the years. They've been part of Mexico. They've been their own country. They've been part of the United States. They've been part of the Confederate States. They've been part of, I, I think, five or six France different... France, too, yeah. Yeah, France, Spain. They've been part of six different nations over the years. We fought a civil war in the 1860s on this continent under the principle that you just can't pick up and leave and decide you want to be your own country. Now, if this Russian recognition of, uh, you know, uh, Donetsk is able to stand and other countries join in recognizing Donetsk. What do you think that sends a positive nation, a positive message to other country, other regions that want to be their own country? Does that send a positive uh, message to places like Catalonia or uh, Venice or Quebec, places where there's burgeoning independence movements or does it send a dangerous message that anybody can just start their own country whenever they're upset at what's happening in their capital? Well, uh, first first of all, I'll mention that uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and Syria have all recognized our republics uh, already today. So it's not just Russia anymore. Second of all, we can take uh, Texas as an excellent example. It's, there's quite a lot of parallels between the history of Texas and what's going on in Donbass right now. In 1835, I believe it was, uh, General Santa Ana made a military coup in the government in Mexico City. He changed the Constitution, installed himself as president for life. And it was after that coup d'etat that the people in Texas decided to break away from Mexico. They started a rebellion. Santa Ana came up. Uh, there was the Alamo. There was San Jacinto, the Mexican army. And Texas won its independence. For 12 years, it was, its, it was the Republic of Texas. And then it made a treaty with the United States and joined the United States. Now, at that time, the United States didn't have any problem with, you know, the separatists from Texas 
joining up with them. So uh, then the Civil War came. You know, and when Texas signed the treaty with the United States, they uh, they put in that treaty that if at a later date Texas decides it's to its advantage to secede and again become its own republic, that they had the right to do that. And the United States signed off on that in that treaty. Then after the Civil War, they said, okay, that treaty is no longer valid. Nobody can break away. But you know what? Uh, and of course, I'm against slavery completely and all that, you know, but I'll say this. Sometimes I wonder if it's uh, not uh, too bad that the North won, because I think that perhaps the United States, if it had been split into two countries, would have caused uh, maybe quite a bit less trouble that it's caused in this world, especially, you know, in the later part of the 20th and the, now in the 21st century. So it sounds like you do think any region that wants to break away from any country should be able to. Well, you know, it's like this, you know, on uh, Google Maps, for instance, you know, the Ukrainians have changed the names of some of the towns in Donbass. But the people that live in those towns still call them by the names that they've been called you know, for decades or even centuries. So you understand that what I believe is that the people that live somewhere, it's their right. If I mean, people aren't going to change their governments unless there's a reason. You know, I mean, you understand the United States was a separatist from the British. No, you know? I, I do and understand whole, Absolutely. And, 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 look, and the whole... Go ahead. Okay. The whole idea behind the Declaration of Independence is basically what we're doing here in Donbass right now. You know, uh, I mean, the people who live in a place get to decide what the name of that place is called. You know, the people who, you know, stand up have to fight against their own government. You know, they don't they do not do that just uh, because there's nothing good on TV. You know, I mean, Understood. there has to be intolerable oppression before somebody will really get out into the street. The, and, uh, the impression, Russell, that a lot of people in the United States have, and I want you to address this, is that Vladimir Putin is using you and uh, the people in, in Donetsk and Lugansk as a, a, a essentially a, an excuse for him to violate Ukraine's territorial borders and that he, he is using coming to the rescue of these ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine as a pretense for moving in on Ukraine. But you're saying that's not the case. Well, I mean, he doesn't need a pretense. I mean, there's genuine neo-Nazis that say Heil Hitler and Slava Bandera, who is a Nazi collaborator and one of the worst war criminals of the Second World War in the Ukrainian government. You know, I mean, you think how much a Jewish person gets offended if they see somebody with a swastika flag. I mean, you know, they say 6 million Jews got murdered by the German Nazis. 25 million Russians got murdered by them. So how do you think they feel when they see somebody waving a swastika flag, you know, on right next door, you know, right on their border? You know, I mean, they don't need any other excuse. They have enough. You understand, again, I say the Maidan was a coup d'etat. It was a... A, an installation of a puppet government by the United States with the specific intention of 
making trouble for Russia on their doorstep. And that's exactly what they've done. You know, there's no, no peaceful solution to this. I mean, and Putin has tried for eight years to find a peaceful solution. And, you know, finally, you know, I mean, if eight years ain't long enough, how long is? So finally he says, all right, we're not going to sit there and watch people get murdered on our doorstep anymore. We have the right, we have the responsibility, and we have the power to stop these war crimes. And that's what they're doing. I know I alluded to this in our previous conversation, but I, I just want you to address this one more time. You're a communist. The People's Republic of Donetsk is communist. And yet um, a lot of the folks there seem very fond of Vladimir Putin and Putin's government in Russia, even though Putin is uh, Putin is a fervent anti-communist and the communists usually run someone against him in the presidential elections. And they're opposed to a lot of aspects of Putin's agenda. How do you as a communist comport that with your support of, of Vladimir Putin? Well, I am a communist. Uh, the the people's republics are not communist at all, to be, you know, to be honest. Oh, they're I mean, not. There is okay, a, I, I assume with the name People's Republic mm-hmm. of Donetsk that it would well, be. Well, I mean, there, there is a uh, strong uh, uh, affection and nostalgia for uh, the Soviet Union here. Uh, the Donbass area was one of the uh, most strongly uh, communist areas in the whole Soviet Union. Um, and that's the historical and political fact. But the governments in both Lugansk and Donetsk are not, uh, unfortunately, to my mind, are not communist uh, in the least. We do have a good, strong uh, social uh, welfare. Uh, you know, education's free here. Medical is free here. The, uh, you know, apartments and heating and, you know, the necessities of life are uh, very inexpensive if not free and subsidized by the government for the welfare of the people. But it's a long, long way from being an actual uh, communist uh, administration. And what The thing that I and the people here, communist or otherwise, like and respect and love about Vladimir Putin, I mean, is first of all, he's a really cool guy. He is, you know, there, when you compare him to any other leader, national leader in the world. I mean, you look at somebody like Boris Johnson or Macron or Joe Biden, you know, I mean, and it's, I mean, you talk about cringeworthy, you know, Biden wears a diaper. Putin is one of the greatest martial artists in the world. You know, Macron or just look at Boris Johnson. And I mean, what can you say? So we respect that he is a great man by any, any measurement of a man. We can see his work since, you know, 1990, when the destruction of the Soviet Union, you know, Vladimir Putin, more so than anybody else, and pretty much everybody else, has been the guy that brought Russia back from being on its knees, from being, you know, pretty much getting ready to be completely destroyed, and has turned it into, you know, the strongest military in the world, that's for sure, and one of the strongest economies, too, with an upward uh trajectory of the quality of life, which you compare to the United States or Europe these days. And, uh, you know, I'm sure pretty soon there's going to be millions of people from the U.S. and Europe that wished that they could move to Russia and get a uh, Russian passport Mm. and Russian citizenship like I have. And that's not why I came here. 
In 2014, the war was very hard. It was very one-sided against the republics. When I came here, I didn't think I was going to live through the winter. It was very, very heavy fighting, uh, small rebel units against major armored artillery aircraft, the whole nine yards on the Ukrainian side. But we lived. We defended our houses, our families, and and we won. How many uh, how many American sanctions am I violating by even speaking to you on the radio right now? Well, um, I'll tell you what. I think at least last time I checked, which I haven't been in the U.S. in seven years now, eight years almost, but uh, the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, if it's still in effect, protects you. Uh, well, that's good. That's good to know. Let me end with this, Russell. What do you call now that, you know, more and more countries are recognizing uh, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic? What do you call someone that lives in Donetsk? Obviously, if you live in Russia, you're a Russian. If you live in America, you're an American. What's someone that lives in Donetsk called? A hero. <laughs> but is there a more precise term? Are you a Donetsker or are you a Donetskyite? What are you? Um, in Russia, we just say, Ya is Donetsk. Ya is Donbass. Uh, fair enough. Ya is Donetsk. Uh, thank you, Russell. It is always enlightening. Hey, stay safe out there. All right. Thanks, Frank. Thanks a lot for having us on. Thanks for defending uh, the First Amendment, bro.